On today's episode, kids are petty, rich people suck, and who's winning your bread? All that and more coming up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Our Science. I'm your host, Alan Collier, and joining me today is Ian Black. Hello. And Kyle Bime. Howdy. This is our 16th episode, which means we are now legally old enough to drive. So where's the first place you guys want to go? Well, uh, let's go to the liquor store and start legally buying alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan to me. Life's not fun unless you're doing something illegal. Our first paper today comes from Futurity.org. By seven years old, kids get that hypocrisy is wrong to suggest new research which discovered that children who were at least seven years old began to predict future behavior based on a person's statement about morals. This is less about kids understanding hypocrisy and more about when do they understand hypocrisy. Because yeah. obviously at some point they're going to figure it out. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about, do they understand hypocrisy like, like naturally? It's more so that they recognize that when when people make a statement about, you know, doing this thing is wrong, they believe then that that person won't do the thing because they said, oh, stealing is wrong. So they're like, oh, well, that person won't steal. And then if that person turns around and does steal, then that person is an asshole and should get punished more harshly than someone who is straight up like, yeah, stealing's great, yo. And they're like, okay, that guy can steal, but he doesn't need as bad a punishment because he was at least very upfront about his intentions. Okay, you, you've, you've, I, you've identified two really major points that I think we need to unpack there, Kyle. <laughs> like, first of all, I, I agree with you. They're, they're identifying that what people say predicts their future behavior in the child's opinion. So that if someone says, That's... If someone, yeah, if someone says, I don't, I don't think stealing is a good thing, then the child says, okay, that person isn't likely to steal. Mm-hmm. Reasonable. Where if someone says stealing is a good thing, then the child says that person's more likely to steal. Also mm-hmm. reasonable. Yeah. Which is really what what's what the study is saying. The the bigger thing that Kyle brought up is the fact that if the person says, I think stealing is morally wrong and then steals, the child believes that person deserves harsher punishment than just a regular thief. Yep. Yes. Which which is why we don't have children in charge of our ju- judicial system. That and <laughs> that the, alone. That's the only reason. <laughs> Coming this fall to NBC, baby judge. <laughs> Oh, I feel there there was there was something in there, or maybe it was a it was in the abstract because I wasn't able to to read the article. So insert my rant on paywalls from episode three. But call back uh, in the in the abstract itself. I think um, there was mention how the, this parallels how adults think of things too, because adults also think that hypocrites need to be punished more severely than people who are upfront about their intentions. So you can be an asshole as long as you're honest about being an asshole. Which is weirdly relatable. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't know why I agree with that, but I do. It's like, as long as you're honest with me, I think it's because we don't want to spend the time into, to like researching someone to figure out whether they're going to be good or bad. We'd much rather just put them into a box right away. Oh, yeah. So we kind of, we kind of appreciate it if they just tell us I am good or I am bad. When they're lying about it, it makes it harder for us to deal with. Yeah. Well, people love compartmentalization and we love putting things into boxes. And so if someone straight up says, hey, put me in the asshole box, you're like, all right, nice. Thank you. And once they're in a box, we don't want to take them out of that box. Yeah. And and I was I was joking about it before, but to be fair, our our judicial system does kind of reward people who come for, like when they commit a crime if they come forward and confess it. Yeah. There is a reward for that in the sense that it's usually a lesser sentence. Yeah, like that's um, the whole purpose of guilty pleas. Yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I did do the crime. Give me a lesser punishment. 
Well, there's there's a moral and a legal parallel. So in the legal system, you're no longer wasting the resources of the courts, and so you get a lesser punishment. Whereas morally speaking, you're no longer wasting my time and energy trying to figure out if you're an honest person. So you know, you get a less lesser punishment because you're at least you're not a hypocrite. You're upfront about being a jerk. I think also if someone's honest about admitting that they did something wrong or know that they did something wrong, I feel like we think that they're more likely to be. Um, rehabilitated mm-hmm. and to, and we can teach them like okay but this is a bad thing and you need to stop doing that where if someone thinks they're doing a good thing but is actually doing a bad thing that's really hard to change yeah. so like from a legal point of view it's like if you're admitting you did something wrong it's like okay that's a good first step yeah also kids are harsh with punishments oh yeah well they send you straight to the naughty step there was <laughs> wow all the sorts of callbacks today there was a, a article that was linked in this article about a study that showed children would enforce punishment even if it cost their own enjoyment. Like if somebody did something wrong, they will they will remove something from that person even if it costs them at the same time. Kids are petty. I love it. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about like because they did actually they did a lot of actual studies here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like That's did, a solid I, research. Four hundred children ranging from four to nine years old. Mm-hmm. They did, yeah, they, yeah. So they did the first experiment. The research told participants about two children, one who condemned stealing, and the other who just made a neutral statement. So stealing is bad. Broccoli is gross. Not a neutral statement. Broccoli is delicious, and that child is wrong. Um, <laughs> I was waiting for you to bring that up. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, that was this the running example? Like eating yeah. broccoli is morally neutral. Yeah, actually, yeah, side note on that. These people are like... Broccoli Broccoli is very healthy for you. Yeah. Broccoli comes up many times in this so article. So many times. Because even like the future research yeah. is to see whether we can predict kids' reactions yeah. to broccoli. What's the middle ground between stealing and not stealing? Eating broccoli. This is this is stereotypical that, that broccoli gets picked on a lot here. I think... I, just, I don't think to a kid eating broccoli is morally neutral. I think they would be against it. Right? As a kid. Mm-hmm. Like they should have picked like mashed potatoes or something that you know at least they should has... have picked concrete. <laughs> How do you feel more... about bunkers? <laughs> yeah, more callbacks. This is why. Oh, now I'm getting on tangent. This is why I never understood Veggie Tales because it's like, okay, kids don't really like Bible stories, so what are we going to add to it to make them more interested in it? <laughs> vegetables, cucumbers. Yeah. Kids love vegetables. Well, the story behind the, the animation software that they had could only make very simple shapes, so their options were basically a series of circles. For characters or a series of rectangles for characters and so their first thought was oh we should make candy but then the the wife of one of the creators was like oh if you make all the characters candy kids will just love candy and want to eat all the candy all the time it should be like vegetables because that's that's not currently the case yeah man is it just me or does veggie tales have like there are way more people who know about and have watched everyone and, knows veggie and, tales. and familiar with veggie tales than the show deserved everyone knows veggie tales <laughs> Coming back, coming back. So that was the first study was stealing is bad, broccoli is gross. And then they asked them, uh, which of these two statements predict whether or not someone is going to steal, like the likelihood of someone stealing. And then they did sharing is really, really good versus someone who said, I never steal, which um, seems, uh, uh, that seems like a weird comparison. Now that I'm reading it, because like, yeah, it <laughs> those are the, those are the two opposites. <laughs> you either share or you don't steal from people. The morally neutral area in this one is Robin Hood. Because, I mean, that man steals all the time, but really likes sharing, so. That's true. But how does he feel about broccoli? He's got a green thing, so he's probably okay with it. I, just, I don't think that's how that works. That's definitely how it works. <laughs> Hulk loved broccoli. He was inspired by Veggie Tales. 
so what, what I think I found interesting about this day, first of all, the, the fact that um, obviously the seven to nine year old participants were more likely than the younger children, four to six, to understand that condemnation is a predictor of future actions. So saying that I never steal, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, saying that I never steal is indicative of future actions that that person will not steal mm-hmm. or saying that stealing is bad rather. That's, I mean, that's what the, yeah. And that's what the kids are like. That's what the kids are saying is that if someone says they're not going to steal, then they're less likely to steal. Yeah. But wasn't there, there's a thing, um, hold on. Yeah. Seven to nine year olds were more likely than younger children to use condemnation as a predictor for future action. Um, yeah. I happen to just be staring at that line while you said that. So that was really convenient. Thank you. The younger children do understand that when someone says, I love stealing, they're more likely to steal. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand that when someone says stealing is bad, that that person is less likely to steal. I, they just assume everyone steals all the time. Well, yeah. Young children yeah. are criminals. I rob you. You rob Again, me. why we don't have young children in charge of our judicial system. <laughs> just be the blind We have adult criminals in charge of our judicial yeah. system. Yeah. Hey-o! Hey. Hey. <laughs> All right, one thing I wanted to mention uh, was that this is part of, I mean, not specifically like it's part of like an organized thing, but a part of a, a sort of a modern trend of trying to figure out like when kids learn what as part of trying to figure out how to, how they develop mentally and how they learn essentially. Yeah. Right. We know about how kids are starting to like, when do they start yep. putting together their sort of mental processes? Yeah. So this is why they did it between, I like that the kid did it with kids between four to nine to sort of figure out where that line is. Mm-hmm. Like, where is the point that the kid's brain is is developed enough to say, like, I understand these connections now? Yeah. And I, I wonder if this ties in with uh, a child's... When do children typically develop things like empathy and, like, an ability to see things from a, from another's perspective? We talked about that uh, like a month say... and a half ago or something about kids understanding other points of views. Yeah. I don't remember what that article is about. I don't remember when we did it. I don't remember the results. I'm, I'm just wondering if the ages would kind of match up, like this understanding. Of... I think it's on a similar timeline. What episode was with with Sarah when we were talking about the the like the three mountain test? Hmm. Hey, we're actually we're right on the age timeline. I'm doing a quick Google of the three mountain test, and at age six, that's when kids can start being aware of a perspective different of their own. And then by ages seven to eight, children can clearly acknowledge that more than one point of view exists. It's hard for younger children to put themselves in the position of that person to understand that if this person thinks that stealing is bad, that means that they are less likely themselves to steal. Mm-hmm. Whereas older children, because they have that empathy, they can put themselves in the position of that person. And, and so that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I like to see, I'd like to see if, you know, them actually make that connection in this article. That would have been kind of neat. I imagine that's a future study or something. Yeah, it would need. Yeah, no, we only need... study broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the next studies are all about broccoli. So, Kyle, I, you mentioned earlier that you were the victim of a horrible theft. I was. I was the victim of a horrible theft. A theft against me and just a horrible crime against the environment. Someone stole my recycling bin. Oh, your recycling bin. My recycling bin was stolen, and I don't actually. <sighs> I heard. I heard when you first brought this up. I thought you said your laundry bag was stolen. I don't know how I got None those two confused. None of those confused. words sound the same. <laughs> well, bag and bin words. both have the same number of letters and start I with guess. a B. Um, so there you go. There's the connection. <laughs> I was getting all hyped up to. I was getting all hyped up to make fun of her for having a laundry bag. <laughs> no, I have a basket for that. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like a real person. I'm like looking at my laundry basket and being like, am I weird? <laughs> what do no, other people it's the, use? it's the children who are wrong. All right, tell me about this. Tell me about the crime. What? Uh, I'm the investigator. What did what what the perpetrator look like? It was yeah. probably someone you knew. It was five <laughs> raccoons in a trench coat. <laughs> No, I mean, I I put my recycling out. My recycling gets picked up at like seven on Friday mornings, which is objectively the worst time. Yeah. Um, cause, because I live in Sudbury and you're not allowed to put out your garbage and recycling the night before because bears. Um, <laughs> so I, I woke up early and I put, up the, put out the recycling. I put out the recycling and I came home and the recycling was gone. That's That's it. There was... There's no recycling bin. It's disappeared. They okay, also well, okay but the recycling in the bin was gone too, right? Like, it wasn't they just took the bin? I They took the recycling? bin and its contents, as far as I'm oh, aware. Okay. Someone just walked off with my recycling bin and all its contents. I'm imagining Kyle putting the recycling bin down, like, Thursday night, and then waking up Friday morning, the recycling's gone. She'd be like, who stole my recycling? <laughs> I needed that. Yeah. <laughs> all they left was this stupid, useless bin. <laughs> now when the garbage bin come, there won't be anything for them to collect. <laughs> What a tragedy. <laughs> um, well, this is really interesting, actually, Kyle, because... uh, uh Was this, this last Friday? Yeah, no, this is, like, yesterday. Yeah, okay, so... Oh, so yesterday... Yeah, this is interesting, because yesterday I... Um, I I was walking by your house and I stole your recycling bin, so this is a really interesting coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Our second article today comes from Western Virginia University. Helicopter parents say their actions are all about their children, but what they're doing is reaping the rewards for themselves, suggests new research, which found that high helicopter parenting leads to low mastery, self-regulation, and social competence in young adults aged 18 to 24. So, first of all, this is just saying that helicopter parenting is, is a poor choice, which, um... Yeah. I guess we should, like, go over what helicopter parents are. I, That's good. It's yeah. not that uncommon a term, but... Not as uncommon as hothouse children, which we'll get to later. I really, I like that term. All right, what's a what's a helicopter parent? Well, you describe it. You're the one that wants to describe it. No, Kyle, describe <laughs> it. I mean, a helicopter parent's like a parent that overly smothers their child. They act like a helicopter. They're always over your shoulder. They're always over your shoulder. They're, for they you. make yeah. a lot of the decisions. They are very, I, I say protective because I can't think of the synonym, but... We're saying they're like helicopters, and we're listing things that helicopters are not known for doing. <laughs> what, Constantly hovering over your shoulder? Decisions. I've never had a helicopter <laughs> hover over my shoulder. Well, you've never Or lived. make my decisions for me. You've never been on the run. But I yeah. think it is like a helicopter. Yeah, like helicopters constantly overhead, constantly watching you. Yeah. And yeah. and ironically, they're they're trying to be overprotective, but actually they're hindering their child's ability to protect themselves. Yeah. yeah. And I, It's commonly known that being a helicopter parent is not a thing you want to be yeah yeah i've, this I've is... known people who have helicopter parents and they're just like they're texting their kids every five minutes it's a massive ordeal to let them go anywhere it's just this constant overprotectiveness and it, it, they say it comes from this place of oh i just care about you so much and i want you to succeed and i want you to be protected but really what this article is saying and it really comes from the parent it comes from a place of making the parent look good which which makes sense. Yeah. Even from like a, yeah. a, a protective viewpoint, if you're just like, I just need to know where my kid is at all times. It's like, yeah, you need to know. Mm -hmm. It's not a that's like, yeah, there is a degree of the kid's safety, but it's really it's about your own self, um, like, like your own stress. Like it's like you're stressed out because you 
haven't texted your kid in the past 30 minutes. It's not about the kid being in danger. It's about you're being stressed. Yeah, this is this is different from like being an overly protective parent. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and they did they did also stress uh, here that helicopter parenting mostly occurs in middle to upper class families where it's more important for those parents to be able to say, "Look at my offspring. They yeah. are so wildly what? talented and successful. I made that. I did that. Look at that. I made it." I I I have a question about the way they phrase this one sentence here indicates that high helicopter parenting leads to low mastery. What does low mastery mean? What is I I did I didn't like the use of mastery because mastery is really vague. Mm-hmm. I get self regulation and, I... and social competence, but yeah the the example they give is um so they talked about the college admission scandal that happened recently where right, right, right. some yep. Hollywood actresses bribe high profile universities to get their kids in there. So it's essentially saying that like, these kids who are put in these situations um they have low mastery because they haven't actually earned a lot of the. Mm. At least in this instance, they hadn't earned the high scores that got them into that school. And so they're going to suffer in terms of their grades. They're going to suffer in terms of their learning because they don't actually, they haven't actually had the opportunity to acquire these skills because they've just been coddled the whole time. Yeah. So in, not in the article, but in the actual paper itself, they have a very, very brief description of mastery where it was, it's based on a, a seven item mastery scale. And a sample question in the survey would be, I often feel helpless in dealing with the problems of life. So it's like, how, how self-capable are you, I think, is what it essentially is, what mastery is. Mm-hmm. It's like, how much can you just deal with your own problems? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I see that now. Okay, that makes sense. The, the way they did the study, too, is that it was like, it was self-reporting. So this is people, like, it's not even necessarily that they don't have the skills, but they feel they don't have those skills because mm. they've been constantly treated in such a way where... They, they probably do feel incompetent because they've never been allowed to do anything for themselves. So why would they even believe that they can? Yeah, every time they face a problem in life, the parents come in and solve it for them. Mm-hmm. So not, not only do they not know how to solve the problems, but they also feel like they can't because they, obviously they've needed a parent to help them at all times. So then they mm-hmm. start to feel like, well, that must be because I have to have a parent solve all my problems. So. Yeah. But so. it, even, it even goes further and says like sometimes they, they, they do know how to solve the problem. They just never get to. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's That's like, also like they never they never get the experience of no like they'll encounter a problem they'll think of a solution but then the parent will solve it before they do so they never actually know if that solution would have worked or not like it's mm-hmm. like and I do like the I do agree with this idea of of hothouse children which, which is a I weird was term a great like metaphor for it I, I, I do like the metaphor, metaphor. Yeah. yeah the metaphor I think is cool they do enough to explain it in the article I'm like yeah. okay because I'd never heard of that otherwise it's essentially that I mean we should explain it too it's essentially that. A hothouse child is like grown in this perfectly conditioned greenhouse or hothouse. They have all, everything they ever want, but then if they, if any of those conditions are altered in a negative way at all, they're immediately going to collapse. Yeah, they have to have this perfect conditions all the time. Which which I think is really uh, important to something that I've always believed, which is that you shouldn't you should fail at something. Yeah. Like in your life, you should try something and fail at it to experience what it's like to fail. And more importantly, to realize that that's not the end of the process. It's actually just a part of the process, right? Like failure is just a step along the way to success rather than just everything has to be a success all the time. Mm -hmm. So this, this is setting these children up for a situation that when their parents are no longer there to um, helicopter parent them, they're going to experience a failure and it's going to be you know, ex- could potentially be very devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if it happens earlier in life, then... Yeah. Like, in the instance... I, the the example that comes to mind is 
in a lot of education in a lot of schools now, kids can't fail. It's impossible. You, if you don't like do well on a test, if you get bad grades, you can't actually fail anymore. And you just continue to advance and you keep going on through the different grade levels and you think, yeah, I can get through this. You know, I don't need to study. I've never studied before and I've always gone up a grade. And then you reach a point where it's like, oh, I have failed this course or I have like failed this test and there's nothing to save me. This is my mark and I am stuck with it. Yep. My name's Alan. <laughs> and I'm a failure. Um... <laughs> but it is one of those things that's really hard. Like it's hard for kids, I think, to, to understand when it seems like failure is just this ultimate negative thing and they don't want it. That failure is mm -hmm. like, it's not, it's not what you're going for, but it's fine yeah. if it happens, it's going to happen. Yeah. And it should be noted, too, in, in this study, they were specifically looking at people who are still being helicopter parented in the eight, when they were 18 to 24 years old. Yeah, this is okay. Didn't, I don't they know didn't look, it, but yeah. Yeah, they didn't look at kids that were being helicopter parented, like young adults who currently feel that they are being parented by helicopter parents. I, I, I do think it's interesting that they kind of touch on this idea that it could, like, being helicopter parented causes can, can lead to uh, lack of autonomy heightened anxiety and as well as to leading the belief that they're incapable of living independently which mm -hmm. could potentially feed into wanting to be helicopter parented more yeah like because if you feel like you can't live independently then you're going to keep living with your parents yeah, like a feedback loop yeah yeah which becomes interesting because then if the whole point of helicopter parenting is to raise your kids up on this pedestal and then your kids won't leave your house then and I do think it's refreshing that for a change on this podcast, we're bashing the parents instead of the children. Yeah, and rich parents too. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> Eat the rich. <laughs> Our third paper today comes from the University of Bath. Husbands are least stressed when their wives earn up to 40% of household income, but they become increasingly uncomfortable as their spouses' wages rise beyond that point and are most stressed when they are entirely economically dependent on their partner. So let's talk about men and their fragile and egos, their, their money and the patriarchy. First of all, I don't understand why more men don't just want to like sugar mama. Like, <laughs> well, it's literally the easiest job. Not all of us can attract them like you, Ian. <laughs> the the interesting thing that they do point out in the study is that if it is a relationship where prior to the marriage it is understood that the woman makes equal or more money then the men are like, yeah, this is fine. But if it happens over the course of the marriage that the woman begins to, to earn a higher share of the household income, then, then that's when fragile masculinity See, but I would, I, would, I would wonder, is that because the guys that are marrying the women that make more money are the kind of people that would date those people in the first place? Whereas the guys that are marrying people who, women who make less money and then get insecure as they make more money are the kind of guys that would be like, you know, oh, this I'm dating this girl, but she makes more money than me, so I'm going to break it off before we even get to the marriage point. You know what I mean? Well, maybe. That's an like, interesting there's, there's, point. There's kind, of a weird, there's kind of a weird false consensus effect in that the act of, the, the act of getting married is, is biasing mm -hmm. that, that statement in the sense that, you know, men that, might, that are uncomfortable with women making more money are less likely to marry someone who's already making more money than them. You know what I mean? That's yeah, true. that's Potentially. interesting. I hadn't thought about that. My my version of this was that people who were in a relationship where they're making the same amount of money or the man was making more, the man envisioned themselves as like this provider and the person mm -hmm. who's going to, you know, pr provide for yeah. his family and protect his family and then f sees that like disappear 
And all of a sudden, these grand ideas they had in the dream, they had like just vanish, and now they're like, "Well, what do I do exactly again?" Yeah. And it could be, it could very well be that it could be this idea of that's like, the implication I think they make in the paper. But I'd like what what you said was a really interesting way of looking at it. Of like, yeah, maybe people are just not getting married because they know that's going to happen, and they're you know, yeah, like I don't want to date someone who's making more money than me, so I'm obviously not going to end up marrying that person. Therefore, yeah, I'm yeah. going to marry, I'm going to date someone who's making less money, but then they start making more money after we're married, and now I'm, I'm. Yeah, that fuck, could be a confounding right? variable that kind of feeds into this. But 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 on the, by the same token, it could be very well be that you know we establish when we get married what our roles are, and it's the changing of those roles from a financial perspective that's causing the stress. Not mm-hmm. that that's a more positive way of looking at it. That guys are actually quite comfortable marrying someone who's making more money than them. What they're not comfortable with is the change of of role yeah regardless of whether uh, where it comes from like if it is a case where men who are uncomfortable with women earning the same or more of them are not marrying those women and then there's that change of role the the source of that discomfort that that the point that the paper is trying to make is that it comes from this persistent societal idea that men are the breadwinners 100 percent agree and i think yeah. that's yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's even like exacerbated later on in the paper when they talk about how like men h- deliberately hide the fact that they're uncomfortable from their wives mm-hmm. because they like they're almost like caught between this rock and a hard place they're uncomfortable that their wife wife is making more money but they recognize that being uncomfortable isn't right or manly or manly yeah or manly or it's it's like it's 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 sexist to to be like no I need to be the one that's making more money so they get like even more uncomfortable because now they're they're mm-hmm. fighting against they're they're both fighting against and being pushed by a social norm at yes. the same yeah. time. Yeah. And we've done a really good job of of or we're starting to do a good job of letting women know that they don't have to just be the one in the house and they can provide as well and they can be the breadwinner. But we haven't And women told... needed men to tell them that. Oh, absolutely. The royal we of all of society, not specifically <laughs> okay. men. Okay. You jackass. <laughs> It's a good thing men were here to let women know that they could yeah, you're make welcome. decisions for themselves. But what we haven't done is we haven't told men that it's okay to not be the breadwinner. Exactly. We've yep. now gotten to a situation where now everybody wants to be the breadwinner. And so it feels like whoever's taking care of the domestic stuff. That sounds like a great is... plan because then you'll have a lot of money and then you can be a helicopter parent. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to the point where if you're doing the domestic things, it feels like you've lost. Which isn't how it should be. Like, if you're the one taking after, looking after the kid, if you're the one doing the laundry and cleaning, then you're like, then that's worse than that. Maybe not looking after the kid, but literally everything else sounds dope. It's like, okay, clean the house, make supper, spend the rest of the day doing whatever the fuck I want. I mean, I get it sounds good to me. It's basically retirement. It sounds good to me that you're the one doing those things. So, (laughs) oh, yeah, let's get married. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah. we, we, we are getting to this point in feminism and our understanding of like the roles of men and women in society where we are rec- like it's it's being recognized that there are the roles of men and women should be equal and that's great and that's awesome and women have power and can earn the same amount of money as men but we haven't reached the point where we've like we're, we're, we're getting to the point rather where it's like trying to Explain to men. You know what? Now the women are explaining to you, men, that patriarchy hurts you too. Well, it's this, and that's true. Yeah, it, it definitely does. The whole. I mean, it's not like the toxic masculinity part, but it's the whole like masculinity is is a very mm-hmm. 
ill-defined thing like it's, it's almost too precise yeah and so like if you're not doing these very precise things then it's not you're not being masculine and not being masculine is like the worst thing you can possibly be yeah if if you want to have a career whether you're a man or a woman if you want to have a career and make the money that's fine if yeah. you want to stay at home and not have a career that's fine exactly if you want to split them between the two people that's fine too the only thing that's not fine is if you feel forced to have a role you're not that you don't want mm-hmm. yeah yeah well alan's strong masculine voice has said it therefore it must be true yes i'm just kidding alan doesn't have a strong masculine voice (laughs) they bring in a whole whole point too about like the balance of power in a relationship and that when there's a when there's a income imbalance it may make people uncomfortable because if the relationship deteriorates it leads to the possibility of divorce and separation i really want to know where that that comes from because i to me just and maybe it's my overactive imagination, but to me that reads like, oh, my, my wife makes more money than me. We're getting divorced and I'll be destitute. Like, I guess I that's how the brain works. I think it's like, if there is a divorce, then the wife is going to end up with all the stuff. And so it's like, now I I'm, I feel like power, like not me personally, but like a man would feel like powerless of like, if I'm not the breadwinner then and she wants a divorce then I have nothing. And really, that's the healthiest way to approach a relationship. Yeah, it's immediately thinking about what will happen if you get divorced. (laughs) Give me those prenups. (laughs) No, I actually, prenups are like the best thing ever because you you sort all that out and then you don't have to worry about it, um, in my opinion. As someone who's never been married before and therefore you should take my opinion about marriage. (laughs) The paper's also about, you know, like toxic masculinity and this idea that... um, well, and it's it's harmful to men's mental health, though. Like men are yeah. experiencing distress because they're like, "Oh, I'm not the breadwinner anymore. Like I I failed my family." That's what I mean. It's like it's like it's, it's this idea that yes, yeah, it's the idea that traditional ideas of masculinity are causing stress because men are actively trying to be okay with it, but also being pushed, it, having it pushed on them by mm-hmm. you know implied yeah. societal yeah. roles. We're, we're told we're raised sort of feeling like we need to be strong and protect people yeah. and, and raise a family. And yeah. then, you know, 20 years later, we're in a place where we actually don't really need to do that. Yeah. But then it's like, well, yeah. no, what do we do? I, don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is toxic, toxic masculinity because I think it's, I'm very sympathetic to people who. No, I'm not saying the men, I'm not saying the men are at fault for being stressed out. I'm saying, yeah, I'm okay. saying they're Society the is at fault. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you on that. I'm saying they're the victims of toxic masculinity in the sense that it's like the masculinity of society is is pushing them. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally understand feeling like I want to provide for my family and make sure that like I want to. Yeah, I want my role to be that like everybody in my family is happy and. And and in and in a rare case, the women are not only not the victims nor the perpetrators. They're just kind of. They're just there. They're just there. Just they're just there doing their thing. (laughs) The interesting thing was that. um, so men, once that 40% uh, earnings proportion was hit, that's when they started to feel increased amounts of stress. Women perceived that they met, that their spouse's stress was the lowest when they were earning, when it was 50-50. Yeah, so which I think co- is really... Yeah, yeah so there, there is a gap where like w- women are coming at it with this understanding like, oh, we're equal earners. This is, this is good. Like The societal understanding is that men are the breadwinners, and so men kind of come out with it with this attitude of I need to be the primary breadwinner, whereas women are now coming at it with this understanding of oh, if we share the burden financially, then that's better. And so it's like there's this this societal pressure is creating this this disparity between the way men uh, perceive what is equal income earning or appropriate income earning versus the way women perceive it as we should be equal partners in the financial responsibilities. 
I, I think that we're all going to, the next generation is going to get to the point where we're all so poor that we just want bread. Yes. Just any, from anywhere, literal from anybody. Bread winning is literally just like you any work bread. for bread. Yes. Yeah. If you want to brag about how you earn more money than us, then message us at our science pod on Twitter. That's O-U-R science pod on Twitter. It wouldn't be hard to earn more money than us. <laughs> Not hard in the least. Okay, good. If you want to stop earning more money than us, then send us money to <laughs> our science pod. <laughs> For Ian and Kyle, I was your host, Alan Collier. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.